This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. I'm Erica Heilman. Today, an interview with photographer Jamie Cope. Jamie's house is filled with vivid pictures of people. Not provocative or shocking, but there's an intimacy in her portraits, as though she's looking into the people she's photographing, and they're letting her. I couldn't help wondering how she did it. What were they talking about? How did she catch them being so much themselves? Jamie was born in 1921 and grew up in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s when films were black and white and when they used natural light as the main source of illumination. For over 30 years, Cope produced black and white portraits using natural light and with incredible attention to the subtleties of shadow. We sat on her couch in Montpelier and talked for the better part of an afternoon about photography, marriage, eating tacos on Olvera Street in Los Angeles. If you want to look at the photographs we talk about in this interview, they're all on my website, rumblestripvermont.com. In this first segment, Jamie talks about how she got started as a photographer. Welcome. When we divorced, which we should, we should have done earlier in the, his career, and on my career of being a housewife, when we divorced, I didn't, I didn't have anything to do because I was a housewife, a professional housewife. That's all I did, and give parties to this faculty and, you know, the, all that professorial uh, problems that you have. So I w- was in therapy with a, f- a fine psychiatrist, and um, he asked me, now what are you going to do? I said, I don't know. (laughs) So I began thinking, well, I always wanted a degree in college. And I knew that I was, I had a sensitivity to art. So I went down to the Maryland Art Institute, signed up, and took a photography course. And I don't know why I took a photography course, because I'd just popped in my head. When I did take a photography course, it was like, it was magic. I somehow, the angels wrapped me up and said, this is what you do. It it sounds as though when you started, you there was a facility there. When you describe the angels singing, there's a way in which it's like something's brushing up against you, like, this is it, this is it. Can you describe when you felt that and how that felt? First, it's a feeling. And it's for every artist. I've I've often uh, spoken to older people about uh, the feeling that you have, because in age, sometimes you don't continue uh, that feeling, but the ones that do, it and it may come sporadically, because it, it just is like a rush. And uh, probably I could say it's similar to an orgasm. It's, I don't know what it is. It's just like magic. It just You just know this is right. And uh, you you have that in you your entire life. For some reason also, I don't know what drew me to 
understand the importance of shade and light and uh, people, their expressions. And um, so I just went full blast into it, and, and it became a career for me. When you first started, did you have some sense of how that would look um, in terms of how, how you approached a portrait? Was it formal and then became less formal, or did it was it always very naturalistic? What was your approach to? Right. I, n- I never used... Well, I can't say I never did, because sometimes it, it was extraordinary and set up. But most of the time, I, I was very attuned through the camera and using black and white. I was very aware of shadows and light and the, the beautiful patterns it ca- carries. So I began photographing. I had odd pieces of furniture. I'd take out it maybe in the woods or uh, see the patterns against a wall and use the background. And I really, really loved the outdoors of, and uh, the, what, the, what nature does to the b- body and the face. You know, it, uh, it plays in gorgeous, gorgeous uh, lights. So I've been a really very tuned in to natural sun and natural shadows. So I did most of my photography, really, probably outdoors. So you arrive at somebody's house, maybe it's someone you've never met, and you have a camera, and you're going to take pictures of someone. How do you develop rapport with someone? And what's the nature of the relationship between you and the subject or the person you're taking pictures of. I, f- I find it terrifying having my photograph taken. I think part of it is when I arrive and they first look at me, I just came with my camera and my tripod. I had a Hasselblad. And, and um, first place, they're not frightened because it's just me. <laughs> With a with a camera and a tripod, it's nothing. It's not a lot of equipment, and you know it's going to be a big deal. And as I set up, and we you know we're we introduced ourse- ourselves, and they they aren't all tied up because I'm not I'm not a tied up person. So you know we talk we talk a little about whatever pops into our heads or. Maybe that maybe their house has some beautiful things in it, or they were busy doing something else. You, you know, it's just regular conversation that doesn't have anything to do with a photograph, like a big scary thing. <laughs> so we so they open open their house to me actually, and say or. We go outside, and I see something that's particularly interesting and beautiful, or the sun's a beautiful way. And we talk about, well, let's look at it, let's see what this looks like. And they get into the play of it. They say, oh, yes, let's do this. And and I, I give them the opening to go ahead, you know, Maud Morgan is a perfect example because that's an extraordinary photograph. I went to her studio, and um, <clears throat> I I didn't know Maud Morgan, as she was a woman 
at that time in her 80s, a very beautiful woman and a very famous uh, artist. And so I was looking around the studio, you know, it has its easels and uh, setups and everything. And so I tried some photographs and I said, well, what's behind this um, area here? And she said, oh, I don't know, let's go back and look. Well, in the in that back area, there was this magnificent uh, chaise lounge of wicker, very rococo with c- curls and just beautiful. I said, you know, let's try something on that. Do you th- would you like that? And she said, yes, I'd love that. So, uh, so she sat down in it, and because it was long, and she had her paint clothes on, and actually she had just buried her ex-husband. He was a difficult man to live with, but they were always friends. And she was in a very low mood, actually. So she she just set, put her body the way she the way she felt, with her ha- hand up and. Um, and their expression was contemplative, and I just took the photograph, just like that. It was beautiful, and it just came off, just her mood. Um, I don't know what she was thinking of, maybe her, you know, the love for her husband, the years they were separated, I don't know. But I just saw it, and I just, it was the easiest photograph, and it's been just very famous photograph because it caught the mood that she had in on this gorgeous antique uh, chaise lounge. There is an allowance of, uh, or um, it seems that they have to allow you to see them. There's an intimacy in, in your photographs that that's complicit. It's, it's both, yeah. both people are part of it. Somehow you get yeah. there. Right. I do get there. Because I'm not in a rush, and and I think by the time we begin thinking and talking about, um, we do, we talk a lot about our lives, and um, so that I get I know something about them, and just I don't know what it is. It's just some connection I can I can bring up and see in them and and feel in them, and I think they do me, too. I'm not afraid of people, you know, I'm just not afraid of them. I can talk to anybody, or listen to anybody. I love listening to people, and it just flows back and forth, and before you know it, you're friends. (laughs) And that's just about it, really. I know Maude Morgan and I became very, very close friends. Many of the people that I've uh, took photographs of, like Harold Edgerton, who invented the strobe, an MIT professor, he rigged up a plastic hose like this, and water went through it. He also used the timer that a strobe has. So you would have these little, like, pearls go down with space between them. Well, he would begin talking about that, and I was watching his face. <laughs> so when he was really looking at them and he was intent about it, then uh, that's when I photographed because 
I know that intense look and really not thinking about anything else. They just were looking like he was just looking at the dollar bear, every little drop. He was, and that's that's what I wanted. Yeah. <laughs> he told me uh, when we came to the end of the trying this and trying that, it, it, we were in, in his um, studio. He said, "Oh boy," he said. I, I'm really looking forward to lunch," he said. "My my wife made a apple pie tonight, and I love them. <laughs> so it's just you know it was so adorable. I just felt like hugging him. He was so darling. He was a darling man anyway. <laughs> just an everyday guy that was looking forward to his apple pie. The photograph that I saw when I came up, there's a photograph of a girl, and she's probably seven, and she has her arms outstretched, and you've captured this kind of magic of a yes. seven-year-old girl. Can you talk a little bit about taking, when, around when did you take that picture? That was, uh, that was up at camp. It was, well, I think 1970. Can you describe taking pictures of her? Well, the camp up there, it's up in um, Last is the name of the the road. It's at Cabot. And um, and at that time, it was the time we all uh, ran around nude, you know. We'll go to camp, take our clothes off, and have fun. You know, just running in through the trees and swimming in the pond. And, you know, that, that, was, that was so much fun. And... I don't know where she got her tutu, but that it really was a dancer's dress. And we were oh we were on our way up to the spring and she had her tutu on. <laughs> and uh, well it was really it wasn't just a tutu, it was a whole dress. And she was she was dancing and all the way up in the woods and in and through the trees and to get our to the the spring water, and she, I don't know what just cut, she just caught that, that all the birds and the trees. It was so beautiful. It was such a beautiful time. She had that fairy like feeling. Just a she she was always delicate and lovely and always emotional and so. That she was just that, and I had my camera with me, and I took her. I took some very lovely, I'll show them to you, some very exquisite nudes of her, just beautiful. Long legs and arms, you know, and she was just lying in the ferns. She was a dream. When you look at a picture like that now, what have you made? What have you captured in, in that? I captured her soul. I did. You're listening to Rumble Strip Vermont, an interview with black and white photographer Jamie Cope. In this next segment, Jamie talks more about what happens between her and the people she's taking pictures of. I don't do candid. I never liked candid shots. And uh, this, is, this is the problem with uh, the, the new ca- cameras that you just 
my my way is very different. I never really thought of this before, but I think it's be it's our conversation and our feeling toward one another that I look for. Are you are you saying that the f- then the photograph is a, is somehow a representation of the relationship you've developed exactly. with them in the moment? Exactly. Exactly. I never thought of that, actually, <laughs> but. When I do consider what goes on between us, it's something that we feel for each other more than a candid or, yeah. Can you describe a difficult, there must be people that you've taken photographs of who could not become intimate in this way with you, become frank or or simple. Oh, you mean in conversation and yeah, and then finally in, t- in trying to take pictures where they couldn't. There is an intimacy that is. It, there's an exchange. Uh, there's that that implies trust. There must be people that you've taken pictures of who were not able to do that with you. Oh, there uh, there are sometimes, but there are people that are like that throughout their life people that can't communicate. The president of Raytheon, uh, I took him for an exhibit, and um, ever since he was a little boy, he was probably just that way, not uh, capable of understanding the other people or reaching other people. There are people that can't reach other people, and I photographed them. so. That's them. I can't do anything at all. They're, they're they're locked. So I just do the best I can. Photographing is a lot like interviewing, because you would be talking to the per- person and uh, whatever they have to say. Their expressions change. Sometimes they become become very intimate, and tell you more than you intend to know. So, and sometimes, like, let's go back to the Raytheon man. Sometimes they have moments when maybe you can touch something and they will respond and you catch it then. Sometimes you can never touch anything. Sometimes they're filled with wonderful expressions and you take many photographs, and then you have to select one in the dark room, which one you liked best. It's a bag of uh, insights constantly. Insights, that's what you have to have. And then you do the best you can. The difference, though, between my talking with you, I mean, yes, we have this between us, right? But when, you, when I separate my mm-hmm. meeting of your eyes with a camera, it almost feels like a trick. We're having a conversation, but I can't quite believe that we're actually having a conversation because I, I, you're yeah. looking at me with hope that whatever I'm going to say will yield a, a, a something to see. I had a Hasselblad. It was on a stand. It, I could be walking around the room and just talking to him and catch, catch an expression and press the button there. But if you have, if you have a big camera in front of your face... Um, then, yeah, that's alarming. 
alarming because you're looking at the you're looking at the camera and and obvious eyes looking looking and doing something to you. When you're holding the pack camera up in front, go take scenery. <laughs> yeah, right. This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. You're listening to an interview with Jamie Cope. In this next segment, Jamie talks about growing up in Hollywood in the 20s and 30s. She talks about getting married twice and what it felt like when her marriage life was over. I grew up in the Depression in Hollywood, California, and we lived on very low, low income. They had built in California, Los Angeles, they had built at that time in the 20s, a new railroad station. That's when people traveled with the the train. And there was Alviro Street down near the railroad station. Of course, it all had Mexican food. So for a treat, once in a while, my dad would take my brother and I, my mother, and we would go down to Alviro Street and have tacos or whatever. And they were like a quarter or less, probably. Then we would walk over to this, it was a very beautiful uh, railroad station with murals and quite, quite extravagant. We would sit on the benches and watch the people coming off the trains, and then we would have conversation about what they wore or what they, we thought they were going to be doing, or look at, isn't she beautiful? Oh, look at, oh, look at her shoes, they're red with bows. And then we'd go home. <laughs> we'd, we'd do that for an hour or so, and then we would go home. So that, that was just like a little aside from our eating out. <laughs> would you make stories about them? Oh, yeah. Oh, that was the whole idea. You know, where, where we thought they would be going, or, or did they have an appointment with MGM? Or, you know, oh, yeah, we make big stories and... and uh, and what they were wearing, and yeah, it was fun. But what it did is teach me how to look at people. So how did you make your way east? Oh, big mistake. (laughs) Um, Who was my first husband? Howard, Howard Stotler. Uh, he was a soldier, and he was in Hollywood. He was studying voice under Nelson Eddy's teacher. Then he went into the Army, and um, he was very, ha- he was really very handsome, very charming, very educated. And I was, I, I liked what, and I liked the way he smelled. He smelled delicious. And, and we were married seven years. But when he came back from the war, I believe he was traumatized, but I didn't understand what it is. He wasn't affectionate, and um, and he was always more or less preoccupied. Had I known more about... But he, he wasn't a person to communicate well. He always had this uh, kind of austerity about him. So I I met somebody that was totally opposite to him, totally intellectual, and totally. Um, so he was a tough guy, and then he, and then he turned into alcohol, and it was just too hard to live with him. But uh, Howard also was a heavy drinker, 
and that also is difficult to live with. So I was young, and I thought, well, I, you know, I can't gut this out. <laughs> and then I met Jack, so then I went into a life with him. Was there ever any choice or any thought in your mind of, of, of um, did you want to be with these men, or was this the, or this was what was on offer in terms of opportunity? Yes, I think that uh, almost uh, anybody that divorces, you you want to be with them for what you love about them, but then on the other hand, um, you can't stand some of the things that you just don't want to also live with somebody who drinks all the time, or there's infidelity, or or rough things that you didn't see and understand before you married. Either man, I didn't know. I married not knowing. Had I been 20 now, I wouldn't, either man, I would have never married. But I don't know what married, you just, you had to marry. You really had to marry if you were seeing that person more than twice. <laughs> yeah. So when you when you divorced the second time, did you have any thought that you would ever marry again, or did you oh. have? Oh no, I, I've never married. I've been I've been single now since sixty five. Was that a, a choice that you made, or was it just a you just weren't interested anymore in that? I would go with many men. And I think that um, after I began knowing them, I saw things that, no, I didn't want to be a slave, one thing, because I was getting older. And um, because the men I would go with were older, and they were used to slave wives. (laughs) That's true. That's true. The men nowadays are all different. They, they do the laundry sometimes. They cook. They take care of the babies. They change the diapers. I mean, they're marvelous. I'm crazy about the men, men that are in their 20s and 30s. <laughs> they're just one. They're, they're companions, real men, companions. We were slaves. We were slaves. Jack had never washed the dishes, never um, cooked, never changed the, he, he never did anything. He just read, read and, and uh, wrote. He was, a, you know, he, he was very scholarly. He had many books out. I, I was just on all fours all the time, just like. <laughs> you women have no idea what it was like. When, when you and Jack parted, you're alone for the first time in your adult life. Do you remember what that felt like? I'll never forget. I'll never forget. I was in therapy then, you know, uh, with a wonderful psychiatrist. Baltimore is filled with psychiatrists Um, because there's so many professors. (laughs) Um, I... uh, we were still living together. I got up and 
I remember the feel. I can. I'll always remember the feeling of freedom. It was like you walked out of prison. I, I, I got in the car, and I didn't even say anything to Jack. I just got out and dressed and got in the car. I didn't even realize what I was doing, almost. It was a beautiful morning, and I drove to Druid Hill Park. It was a big, beautiful park. And at that time, it was empty. Oh, first, on my way to it, I stopped at a Dunkin' Donuts and got some donuts. And then got in the car and drove to Druid Hill Park and sat on the... I sat on the... I really can't... I sat on the grass and looked at the sun and the sky. And I... It's just like I became alive. It was so free. Yeah. I'll never, ever forget that. This is Rumble Strip, Vermont. You're listening to an interview with Jamie Cope. In this next section, Jamie talks about the art of developing black and white photographs. You developed all of your own photographs, is that right? Oh, yeah. From the minute I took them, nobody ever touched any photograph except me. I wouldn't let anybody. No, because the printing is part of you. I would print in my hiking boots and print until midnight or two in the morning until I got it just what I wanted. So is is there the same level of excitement and um, kind of yes. when you're printing? Always. It's always there, every time. You can be dead <laughs> printing, and, and but you wait, you keep printing and printing until it's perfect, until you can soar and say, yes, this is beautiful. <laughs> you, you don't know. And when you're printing, you, do, you never know whether, say, say there is a light spot right here. Well, I could take cotton and put, dip it in a little of developer and just lightly touch it to, so that it would go into slide into the what needed touching up or or dodge it or you know I mean there's a million things you can do with that piece of paper and that negative and when you can see that you've done all that you all that there's to do then you say that's perfect and then you try to make the second one like that because everyone has its difficulties that's the way you you put the put it in the chemicals. It's the way you move it. If you move it too fast, it might be blotchy. You have to know the rhythm of your body and how how to do it carefully. You know every chemical you put it in. You have to know how long to put it in, how deep in it it is in. If the chemical is fresh, and or if you want some another look at it, then sometimes when you put it in old or a little off, 
you have to know how to do it so it comes out a little off the way you want it, a little off. So, you know, if people knew now what goes in a singular print by a person that knows how to print. When you're printing, what's, what is your relationship to the subject in the photograph as you are printing? When you're back in your in your dark room alone with that with, with that with that person I think that I really concentrate on the people what tone I want them to be in I think that's it mm-hmm. I'm thinking a portrait that I did of uh, two sweet women kind of portly and sitting on some steps in the woods and they were very good friends and I could see that in them, that they probably grew up together because it was an up at camp in Wisconsin. And they were happy, that, and you knew they were close friends for all, the, all their you know, young life. And um, I wanted them to be lovely looking. I wanted to get what they were feeling out of, the, out of them, and they were, they were there sweet and kind to each other and are are you saying that then when you were printing the qu- the quality of light that you were trying to establish was to, for to that end is that what you mean oh definitely their print shouldn't didn't need dramatic it didn't need drama it needed it needed softness and the unity to it yeah, so that's that's what I was thinking of as when I developed it. I wanted their background and relationship was a unit, and the and the all where they were sitting. It would I would never have t- put it, you know, like st- some brilliant highlight or something like that. That I didn't want highlights. I just wanted their atmosphere. That, this is this is what kills me now. Nobody understands what the black and white print entails and what it says to you and how you can manipulate it. And it's all going to be gone. It's going to be gone. It's breaking my heart to see that this particular art is going to be gone and we're going to be glued to brilliant instant cameras how does developing this very keen sense of of people's expression change the way that you just walk down the street when you're when you're looking at people does it does it change the way that you see people oh you mean just when i see every every man down the, down the street yeah oh yes oh it changes your whole life you see people, you see shadows, you see you see everything differently. If once you're a photographer, you can never see the world the way it is. <laughs> you keep looking looking at yeah, oh yeah, you, you you're you're a human studier. That's what you are. You become everything that people do. It makes it makes for a very very wonderful world for you. You've been listening to an interview with photographer Jamie Cope of Montpelier, Vermont. Music for this show was created by David Shulman and Quiet Life Motel at shulmancreative.com. 
To see the photographs mentioned in this interview, go to my website, rumblestripvermont.com. Thanks to John Snell and Jamie Cope for allowing me to feature these great photographs on the site. You can always listen to the show on the website, rumblestripvermont.com, or you can put the show on a portable device and listen anywhere. Subscribe to the podcast for free at iTunes in the podcast section or Stitcher. You can download the free app Stitcher at stitcher.com, then just sign up for the show, Rumblestrip Vermont, and new shows will load automatically to your device. If you want to receive an automatic newsletter when a new show comes out, just sign up for the free newsletter on my website, rumblestripvermont.com, and leave a comment. Rumblestrip Vermont is brought to you in part by a grant from WGDR Goddard College and the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Thanks for listening.